1: Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 66, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. So it's good to be back in front of the microphone again. Um, I was not traveling during my absence last week. Instead, I had a long list of things to get done around the house, and uh, uh, including some small renovation projects and some painting. Our house will be 100 years old in 2024, and there's always something that needs fixing or upgrading. Uh, you know, it, it's a charming place, but uh, you know, you really got to keep propping the charm up as, as you go along. Uh, and sometimes you just can't walk away in the middle of these things and head for the recording studio. So I, I know some other podcasting folks who put out a new show every week and, and quality shows too. I'm not, not sure how they manage all of that, but I'm impressed. Maybe they don't have. Um, home renovation and painting chores uh, that they have to worry about. I'm not sure. Now, before we get to this week's guest, I want to thank all of the show's patrons for their support. You know, it takes some funding to maintain any entertainment channel. And, and I'm very appreciative of the folks who help me keep So Much pingle rolling forward. And if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, it's easy to do. And uh, you can support the show for as little as $3 a month. And uh, you can do that via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com so much And, of course, so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. And just drop me an email to so muchpingle at gmail.com for more details about that. So this week, it's my great pleasure to talk with Dr. Kevin Messenger. Kevin is a professor at Nanjing Forestry University in China, and I've known him for a number of years, and we've spent some time in the field. And he and his dad uh, came down to Peru on one of our tours a few years ago. So shout out to Bob Messenger, by the way. Anyone involved with field herping for any length of time is familiar with Kevin's China post on the old field herp forum. And of course we talk about those posts during our conversation, but Kevin has more awesome cards up his sleeve, including his discovery of multiple new herb species in China and his book on the rat snakes of China. So we talk about all of that and more. So let's get to it. Oh, and I had a small thunderstorm wander through the middle of our conversation so you may hear some rumbling and some rain in the background here and there hi everyone welcome back to the show and today it's my pleasure and privilege to talk with dr kevin messenger welcome to the show kevin
0: thanks thanks great to be here
1: um it's good to talk to you uh I want to uh, start off by telling people, uh, giving people a little background. You're a, a, a professor of zoology at uh, Nanjing Forestry University in uh, probably Nanjing, China, correct?
0: That's correct.
1: Okay, uh, I'm I'm kind of curious. I think I maybe you told me this before, but I, I you know I can't remember everything. But uh, how did it end up you? going to China. Give us a little bit about your educational background and how that led into this China job.
0: Okay. Well, um, it's a slightly long story, but I'll try to speed it up as much as I can. Uh, So I did my undergrad at NC State, and while I was finishing up my last year, um, Dr. Heatwall, my advisor, sent me an application on the internet for – because back then the internet was still kind of novel – uh, an application for a job, a summer job, um, doing a herp survey in the mountains of central China. And uh, it was a national job. I applied to it. Uh, there's, it got down to two finalists, me being one of them. Um, ultimately, I got the job. So in the summer of 2006, I went to China, spent four months um, doing this herp survey in the mountains of central China where no survey had ever been done before. So, you know, it sounds perfect um, for somebody that just likes to explore. Prior to that, I had very little knowledge or interest in China. Um, But I got over there. It was amazing. The food was amazing. The herps were amazing. The experience was amazing. The people were amazing. And they loved the work I did. Uh, We found lots of cool stuff. Um, They invited me to come back. In 2008, I came back with my parents um, for another quick little one month excursion. And then after that, I went to grad school at Marshall University for my master's. And as I was wrapping up my master's, Dr. Pauly up at Marshall was saying, Kevin, you don't need to go to a school that has another herp professor. You need to go to a school that has somebody that can offer you something different. Um, cause you're, you know, you're excellent. I can't teach you anything. No herp teacher, no, her professor can teach you anything. Um, you need something that can give you something different, like statistics or some other perspective. So I told him that I really wanted to continue my work in China. Um, and did he have any suggestions? And he said, I have the perfect suggestion. Um, Dr. Wang Yong down at Alabama A&M. Uh, Dr. Pauly has sent, I was the fourth master's student from Marshall To then go to do a PhD at Alabama A and M, so I told Dr. Wong, "Hey, interested in the university? This is what I want to do. I want to continue my work in China. Do you think there's a position for me?" He said, "Yeah, sure, great. You know, come on down. Well, uh, we're actually going to China this summer. You can tag along, uh, get a feel for what you want to do." And that was 2011. That was summer 2011, and that kind of started my China career. Um, so starting in summer 2011 and every summer thereafter, I would go to China for the summer, come back to the U S to do my courses in the fall and the spring and rinse and repeat. And one of those years, 2013, um, uh, my Chinese, uh, equivalent of Dr. Wong, uh, Dr. Ding Yulong said, Hey, Kevin, you know, you're doing all this work, uh, the schoolwork, uh, studies here in China, why don't you go ahead and enroll in our university as a PhD student and um, do a couple more classes, extra classes, and you can get a degree from here as well, because a lot of your work in the U.S. will transfer over uh, to Nanjing Forestry. So I said, yeah, sure, why not? So I enrolled at Nanjing Forestry as a PhD student as well, and then started doing um, both classes at both universities in 2017, I finished my degree in the U.S. in May, and then I flew to China in June to receive my Ph.D. graduation uh, at Nanjing Forestry University. And then right after I graduated, um, they said, hey, any chance you're interested in a position here? Um, Alabama a and also offered me a position as well. And I said, yes, I am interested. You know, let me, you know, think some things over and figure things out. Um, Ultimately, their offer, the China offer was way better. And um, it's just way more interesting over there compared to, you know, I accidentally, I have accidentally found lots of new species of frogs just by going out looking for snakes and, you know, in the U S we come across a new species every decade, maybe. Yeah. But, but there, you know, it's like 10 to 20 a year are being found, not just frogs, but just, you know, all, all taxa of herbs.
1: That's a layer of excitement. That's hard to, to turn turn away from. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. So I accepted the position in fall of 17 and, um, At the time, I was uh, an associate, started as an associate professor. And then just recently, I think I'm maybe two years into uh, an upgrade to a full professor.
1: Okay. So full professorship there now. And how many people work on a parallel PhD track?
0: (laughs) I don't know. Um, (laughs) I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) <laughs> do- Dr. Heatwell, my, uh, undergrad advisor, I think he has three PhDs, but he didn't do them oh, all wow. at once. You know, he did one in biology, then he did one in, uh, anthropology, then he did one in botany, I think. But yeah.
1: Wow.
0: Okay. Not all at once though.
1: It's still impressive, but, uh, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who did th- something in parallel like that. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, so that kind of gives us your, your background on how you ended up in China, and uh, I have a, a couple of ways I want to go at this, um, because we have a number of things to talk about. But I think the first thing I'm going to uh, bring up are, you, you briefly touched on this, are some of the new species that you've managed to, to uh, discover as part of your, your time in China, uh, and you have a, a most recent paper on a new frog, uh, Curexalis uh, inexpectatus, yep, yep, yep. Uh, which is pretty cool. I, uh, I read the, uh, the paper, the PDF, uh, and uh, also uh, I went and looked at your uh, post on Field Herp Forum, the old Field Herp Forum. Oh, for form. those of you not familiar with this, it's Field Herp. Just go to fieldherpforum.com, and that's all one word. And uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin's post is there in the main uh, forum uh, area. And that's like taking a step backward in time, going there again. But uh, any, at any rate, I, I read that with some interest. And um, before I get into the post, which is also pretty cool, I want to talk about the paper. Um, you talk about looking for snakes and finding frogs and accidentally. And I think this is kind of a... a one of those things, right? You heard a frog that you had never heard before. And that sort of your antenna went up. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. For the Curious Alice one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We were herping this one area just by accident, actually, because we weren't supposed to be in this one location. We're supposed to be in a different location, but that uh, location a didn't pan out. So, you know, in our desperation, we found location B, um, just at a random hotel who happened to have a, a, pretty wild area behind them and were, you know, as any herper would do once they get into their hotel, Hey, let's check out the, the hotel grounds and see what we can find. So, you know, we're looking for the common stuff and my friend, Amel, he's looking for a type of tree frog that should be in the region, but, um, we didn't hear any. Um, so he's looking for the tree frog. I'm just looking for whatever, because location A was my primary site. And now that it was out the window, I had no hopes of finding a mega which is what I was hoping to find. And so we're walking around and I hear this one call of a frog that I had never heard before. And, you know, over the years I've gotten better and better at trying to, oh, here's a frog call. Let me go track it down. Let me take pictures. Let me take some audio. Let me take some video. And I would slowly, uh, you know, get a library of frog calls that I could then recognize and go out survey and say, yeah, okay, that's this species, this species, this species without having to track it down and ID it, uh, visualize it. So I hear this one call. I'm like, that sounds like nothing that I've ever heard before. So i Call uh, Amel and Yangi to come over where I am, so that we can hopefully narrow it down. And it took us a while, which is fun, is of course as well, because you know you're you're on this little path and there's foliage all around you and you hear them all around you, but you can't find them because they're they're tiny. And
1: sounds like a story I know.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you don't know if they're high up in the trees or if they're under the leaf litter or if they're right in front of you or if they are on the underside of a leaf, you know, whatever. So eventually uh, we finally found one, um, took a whole bunch of pictures. We ended up finding, I think, four that night. Uh, We swabbed them just to a buccal swab because we didn't want to kill them if we didn't have to, because it might just be a common species that we weren't familiar with. So we just swabbed them for genetics and, uh, and took our pictures and then got back to the hotel room, opened up a, a PDF of a Hurt book um, and tried to identify it. Uh, we could not identify the species, especially where we were. Uh, we were able to get down to the genus. But the thing that was really weird with the genus was the closest specimens were on Taiwan, which was ah. like 600 kilometers away. I forget how many miles that is, it was actually, it was closer to 700, but that's, um, so it's roughly 400 miles away. Yeah. And, you know, so we were thinking, you know, there's no way this is a relative species because where we are, you know, it's highly populated area. Um, and between us and Taiwan, there's even more populated areas and there's lots of universities. There's lots of students. There's also herpetologists. So it just seemed really unlikely that this one location where we were would have this Crazy disjunct population of of this genus, but ended up being positive. Yeah, the results, the genetic results came back positive. So uh, that summer, I uh, sent Yangi down there to uh, collect some specimens that we would turn into vouchers.
1: So when you say it came back positive, you mean it came back unique?
0: Yeah, it came back as Curizalis, and it did not match uh, the other Curizalis species.
1: Awesome. Okay. And, and so you, you kind of had a thought something unique was going on, something new was going on here, but the genetics helped confirm it. And then now it's time to gather the materials you need to make a formal description of the species. Is that fair to say? Yep. 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 Okay. And by then it sounds that, that you probably, you guys are excited about this. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Once,
0: <laughs> once that, uh, the, so at the time Amel was working in South Korea um, and he does a lot of amphibian genetics, mostly with frogs. Um, so he went back to Korea, um, where he was. He has a position. Um, I had invited him to come into China to do this collaboration on this, looking for this one, Hyla uh, Immaculatus. At the time, Hyla, now gyrophytes. And so it was just uh, me and Yang Yi, my assistant for the summer. But yeah, once the, the preliminary results came back... You know, we're like, okay, let's go find some more, find some specimens, take some measurements, do all the work we have to do, and then I think it was maybe the next year, um, Amel was looking to change change positions, so I tried to convince him to come to Nanjing Forestry University. Told the dean of the college, um, he said, "Yeah, bring him on down. We'll we'll give him a uh, invitation to join the university," and he ended up joining.
1: Cool, very cool.
0: So now we work together.
1: I was gonna say, so now you work together. Awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was, I was the first herpetologist there. Then I brought in Amel, and now Amel has brought in a third herpetologist. So okay. the herpetology unit is slowly growing.
1: Okay. And you've got some undergrads that are doing, helping, no, doing some work, I, or well,
0: I don't really deal with the undergrads very much. Just graduate students. Okay. So either master's okay. or PhD, but most uh, mostly master's students.
1: Okay. So they're working on some herpetology projects too?
0: Uh, yes and no. Most of the – so currently right now, because of my situation here in the U.S., um, I do not have any students, and I'm not going to bring on any students until I get back to China. Um, but a lot of the other students, they mostly do bird stuff. Um, even the herp- the students that are interested in herpetology, uh, because the, the more – Well-known professors there are all ornithologists, and so Ah. they all come to that university for ornithology, and then once they're there, they're like, oh, yeah, I like frogs, but sorry, I'm doing this with Dr. Liu or doing this with Dr. Zhang. Um, So they might help me out from time to time, but not officially as one of my students.
1: Okay, I see. Uh, Let's talk for for a minute about when you're going back because you've been in the States for a while.
0: Yeah, man, that's kind of a crazy situation. So uh, I was there in January and February of 2020, right when things were hitting the world. And at the time, I think everybody thought it was just going to be stay in China type deal. So and nobody really knew how bad it was. So early February comes around. The uh, safety precautions there were. They weren't over the top like what we have seen, but they were still inconvenient. Like it was hard for me to get a pizza and get beer. So <laughs> I said that I was just going to head back to the U.S. And um, for three to four weeks while this blows over, because it's it's February. So, you know, it's too cold for me to do any harp work. And I was like, you know, in the U.S., I could at least you know visit some museums maybe. Um, so and I can't it's not easy for me to get food and and my groceries and everything else. So let me just head to the U S for three or four weeks and I'll come back in March or April. Sure. No problem. So obviously I head over and then come March, you know, it hits the world and all the borders close down. So China has been extremely closed, uh, more so than most countries. And it's been that way since March of 2020. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm still here. And now, um, the cost of returning is astronomical. Uh, so in my WeChat group, there's a, a group called you Know Americans Trying to Return to China with a whole bunch of people that are detailing their um, hurdles and costs and everything that they are going through. And some of them uh, have reported costs between 12000 to $15,000 to return, a one-way trip. Holy cow. Because you don't, you know, the, flat, the flights themselves are about five to six times more expensive than normal. And then once you arrive, you have a 28, 28 day quarantine period. Uh, but as of last week, that has now been reduced to 10 days. So that should reduce the cost. And hopefully that will encourage more people to return, which will hopefully drive up flights, which will hopefully bring down prices.
1: So is this, um, is this a ploy or a maneuver by the government in inflating the prices? I mean, it, you, they just don't want people coming over. You, you got to really want it to get you, up, to go over. You
0: have to really want it. The, it's still close to tourists. So they only are allowing uh, people with work visas or spousal visas, stuff like that. Um, at least I think. Maybe they did open up to tourists. But – In the early days, uh, you had to have a work visa to return. So I think they were just trying to keep COVID out of the country because they did successfully for about two years. They were pretty good at keeping it out of the country. Um, Up until, I guess, the Beijing Olympics, uh, after the Winter Olympics, then things started to, to hit the wall over there. And, you know, they still have the zero COVID policy. We think the world thinks that there's no way that'll happen forever that eventually they will say yeah okay we need to uh deal with this another way because we can't we can't sustain this we hope we think but who knows okay
1: yeah they can only do so much uh isolation
0: yeah i mean it's my friends that are there um i have one friend in in shanghai and when it was really bad in shanghai he said it was the the craziest six weeks he had ever experienced in his life. He was, he was one of the medical testers. So he was going around testing people and he said, you know, from, I think he said he got four hours of sleep every day for six weeks in the daytime. He was testing everybody. And at night he was organizing meals for everybody that was isolated, sending meals to different neighborhoods. But my friend in Beijing, Scott, I've, Don't remember if you know Scott, but he's very familiar with the Field Herb Forum. Um, Uh,
1: Scott Lupia? Yeah. Scott Lupia.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's in Beijing. He's been there for close to 20 years now. And I just uh, got some messages from him. He was out road cruising tonight. He found two Mandarin rat snakes and a uh, red banded wolf snake, some Gloideus vipers. It's awesome. So some parts are still, you know, Pretty fun.
1: Yeah, and so I'm sure that got you stoked as to, when can I get back? When can I get
0: back? Yep.
1: But I I think China's not alone in that. My friend Susan Myers from Australia, she had some trouble getting back to Australia for the same reason. The ticket prices were, you know, five figures, uh, astronomical. It's crazy. um, Airplane tickets. So that's, you know, I think uh, the government's involved with some of that. In, in terms of
0: well, so one yeah. of the things I was driving up the price for the airplane tickets for China was they would only uh, allow one flight per week, ah, okay. and um, they had this thing called a, a closed circuit where if somebody on that flight popped positive, then they would then suspend that flight um, for four weeks. So huh. as a as an airline, you had a the diligence to make sure everybody on your flight was not positive. They were all negative because right. otherwise you would have your, your airline suspended. So okay. that drives up. Prices. So these
1: restrictions are what drove the prices up.
0: Yeah. I mean, having one flight a week, everybody wants it. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Wow. Whereas
0: before it was twice a day, flights twice a day.
1: Okay. Well, hopefully that'll, that's going to be changing soon. Um, hopefully so. For all kinds of good reasons. Yeah. So. Um, well, let me back this up uh, to the frog. Uh, Curixellus uh, Inexpectatus, um, which it, it gets it gets named Inexpectatus because... It was unexpected. You did not expect? Not at all.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. As I said, we were in a... you know, Amel was looking for the Hyla, and I was looking for Megafrius. And then on top of that... Um, the massively disjunct population the distance between its next closest relatives so it's completely unexpected so that's why
1: when i looked at the pdf and i started look, reading through this there something was like banging on my head and it's like well oh holy cow i've seen the taiwan uh one of the taiwan species which was uh kirksalis uh ah, yeah mm-hmm. i
0: don't
1: know if i pronounce that right but you know that's how i say it ifinjuri uh, I got that, I think my last night in Taiwan, uh, you know, a rainy night up, up in the mountains. So, uh, I thought, Oh, this is pretty cool. I have a little connection <laughs> to the, to the, what's going on here because I, you know, that's, um, that's the, the genus you're referring to, you know, yeah. you know, Taiwan is kind of, I think not quite due South, but South of South and East, South and East of where, uh, you found your frog and like you say, 700 miles, that's quite a bit of. And so you're, you're not on the coast, you're interior to China. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, so that, that was really kind of piqued my interest a little bit. And uh, the, the frog sits in uh, the, uh, firmly in that genus and there's, I think maybe 20, 21 uh, other species in that genus. So it's, it's not uh it's not a, a, they're kind of scattered around yeah. other parts, and uh, in, in, in and in China, but further, I think further south, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah
0: there's some in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnam, yeah. Laos, Thailand. I don't know about Thailand, but no, I definitely know. The further south you go, uh, usually the more species you get of this genus.
1: Yeah. So it's very interesting to to uh, to try to understand w- w- which one's the outlier, <laughs> you yeah. know, and what other. Forms of Kirixalis are out there, maybe in the gap somewhere. I know,
0: right? And and so, obviously, one of the reasons I want to get back, because, you know, we described this while I was stuck here in the U.S., um, I would love to survey more of that province and see if I can find any linking corridors between yeah. the island and the location where we have ours.
1: Is this frog like a habitat generalist?
0: Or um, It seems pretty particular actually because after uh the next year so that was that was in 2018 when we found it and then in 2019 I sent another um intern to the region I said cuz what's kind of cool is uh the mountain where this is found it comes into three different provinces so on the southeast side it's in Zhejiang province On the southwest side, it's in Anhui province, and on the northern side, it's in Jiangsu province, which is where Nanjing is. So I was like, you know, it would be really cool if you would just go to the the Jiangsu side of the mountain and look for it there, and then you can say, yep, this is in Jiangsu province, or then go to the Anhui side of the mountain and then say, yep, it's also here. So um, the intern went all over this mountain range and didn't find it in any other location. So... Hmm. I didn't think it was a habitat specialist, but it might be. But I'm unfortunately a lot of this mountain, at least on the Jiangsu side, is bamboo plantation. Whereas okay. on the side that we found it, it was uh, I guess it wasn't any kind of plantation, it was just shrubbery. So why wild. It was wild, even though there weren't very many big trees is yeah, just shrubs.
1: Okay. With some water features.
0: Yeah. Um, There's a river down the middle of the, a creek, a creek down the middle of the resort, and then uh, lots of muddy pools and ditches on the on the side of the, of the uh, property. Okay. And that's where they were hanging out on, in this little muddy side road.
1: Interesting. And I can see, I can understand your desire to see where else they might be.
0: Yeah. Zhejiang province, I've only been to twice, once for the, the HERP conference back in 2016, and, and then this little excursion that we did, and so I'd like to explore more of it.
1: Yeah, okay. On your list for when you get back.
0: Yes, I have a big list for when I get back.
1: <laughs> this is not your first frog that you discover either, and I, I don't have, a, you can tell us how many frogs you've discovered, Uh, I know of one other that was, uh, uh, a Magophris. Megafreus, yeah. Megafreus, uh, one of the uh, little, um, they're like, they're toad-like, uh, frogs.
0: Yeah, they have little horns over their eyebrows.
1: Yeah, fairly good-sized genus. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you've—I think at least one species is new. You've discovered that's new to science. Uh, yeah.
0: So that was that was actually my first one, uh, first new species, and um, that was also a pretty funny story, I guess. Uh, so it was 2013, and um, Dr. Ding, who I told you he was the guy that said, "Hey, why don't you enroll in our university?" Um, he does a he brings the University of British Columbia, he brings a whole bunch of students from the University of British Columbia to this one location in China called Wixan, uh Wushan National Nature Reserve. And it's called the Go, Go Global Program, UBC's Go Global Program. And so he brings them to talk about forestry and trees and plants. That's what Dr. Ding does. He's a botanist. And uh, he's like, Kevin, why are not you come? to Wushan with us. And while I'm telling them about the forestry aspect, you can go look for snakes and frogs and bring them back and show them to the students and, and teach about herpetology. Yeah, sure. Because at this time, I'm still just a PhD student. Yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. It's a new place for me a survey. Um, and again, my job is basically just to go out and catch herps. Why would anybody... Pretty tough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, all my food is paid for, all my transportation is paid for, everything. So it's it's great. So, yes, I, I went there. And um, at the time, they had a, a PDF with a list of species that they, the Nature Reserve had previously recorded. So I looked at the list, no photos, just just names. And there were two species of Megaphras listed, Megaphras botgari and Megaphras quatunensis um so i'm walking around and i at this time i would never seen a mega freus in my life because this is again a new region of china that i'd never been to um so i find this one mega take pictures of it and it ends up being all over the place so uh eventually i look it up on the internet which again in 2013 quality of images in this region of china were pretty much non-existent um Eventually, I realized that the common one was Megafrius botgari. And so there's one other one, Megafrius Quatunensis. So we're going all around. Um, I never found the other Megafrius. Uh Fast forward another week later, the REU program with Alabama a and they come over and I get another intern. So I said, hey, how about we go to Wushan for you to do your REU program. REU is Research Experience for Undergrads. Um, you can do your REU program at, here at Wushan and we'll continue doing surveys because at this moment this will only be my second trip to Wushan and you can't tell anything from a location just by going there once. You have to go there tons of times, right? of course.
1: Under varying
0: conditions. Yeah, and, and different months, different seasons, etc., etc. Yeah. Et so... So we go there, Justin and I, and uh, we do these bamboo surveys, which are actually herp surveys in different bamboo locations. And uh, we find another Megafreus. So, Because you can tell it's a megaphrius because of their eyebrows. I mean, they're a very right. distinct uh, genus.
1: I, I want to interrupt here. Is it, is it right to call them a toad? Is um, that – or are they I, actually – I mean,
0: all, I, I all toads are frogs, yeah, but yeah, – uh, I think they're more frog-like um, than toad-like. I mean, they have bumps, but they're, you know, they're not dry. And usually that's one of my big things is toads are dry and frogs aren't.
1: Fair enough. Okay.
0: Um, And so we find another Megaphras. And so I was like, oh, okay, this must be the other one. This must be Megaphras quatunensis. So we take a whole bunch of pictures of it and let it go. And then uh, I get back to the U.S. So this is, again, uh, 2013. Get back to the U.S. in the fall and start doing some more internet research And um, eventually, I finally tracked down another photograph of Quatunensis, And I'm like, huh, you know, this doesn't really look like the frog I have. So I do a deep dive into the Megafreus genus, find a couple of papers on some new species. And I contact one of the authors um, from Hong Kong and I send him the picture of the uh, Megafreus. I'm saying, hey, by the way, you know, I found this in Wui um, you are familiar with the genus Megafrius. What do you think of this? Because according to the literature, there's only two here. And he said, yep, that is not Megafrius quatunensis. That is a third species of Megafrius. And so I was hmm. like, oh, cool. Well, you know, it kind of sucks that I just photographed it and let it go. But, um, either way that meant in 2014, I now had a new goal. So in 2014, um, the UBC program happened again. I went looking all over for this mystery megaphrius. Didn't find a single specimen uh, in the summer. The Alabama a and REU program came over. So I got another intern, uh, Hollis, at that, that year. So I said, okay, Hollis, we're going to go to Wui Shan. We're going to spend a week and we're just going to hit it really hard and try to find one of these new frogs. Her specialty is genetics. So that was perfect. Oh, man. Um, First night, nothing. Second night, nothing. Third night, nothing. Fourth night, nothing. Fifth night, nothing. The sixth night, uh, we find two specimens. So we're ecstatic. uh, And then we go out on the seventh night, our last night, we find two more specimens. So great. Cool. We have four specimens. Uh, We make uh, vouchers out of them. We uh, take some genetic samples, um, take our measurements, and we... Started talking to some other people, and they're like, oh, yeah, sure, but you can't describe a new species based on four specimens. You need at least 10 specimens, at least 10 museum voucher specimens. I was like, oh, okay. So in 2015, uh, I went back again at a different time of the year, and I found like uh, 19 of them. And this is where I cracked the code for the species, which is rainstorms, which is how it got its name. Umbrophila is rainstorm-loving. Um, and yeah, if you go out either during the rain or one to two days after rain, they're all over. But in those first years, it was pretty dry conditions and that's why we Uh. barely found them. But yeah, so, so that started my deep dive on Megafrius and, um, as a result of that, of, as a result of learning Megafrius, then when I would go to new places in China, so there was one time, uh, Dan, Kevin and I, you know, Kevin, you know, Dan, uh, sure. we go down to Guangdong province, Southern China, and we're there just for snakes. We're just road cruising and, and herping. And so we're in the car and I have the window down and we get up to this one parking lot and we're doing a U-turn and out the window, I hear this Creek, Creek, Creek call. I'm like, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. I'm like, that is a mega And you know, according to literature, there's supposed to be four species here, and that's not one of them. So let's huh. go track this guy down. Uh, we track it down. That was a new species. Uh, there, and there's another time I went to um, some mountains in central Jiangxi province to visit a friend. And we're just uh, riding in a taxi to get to the herping location. And I have the window down again. I'm like, wait, stop. I hear a call. That's the megaphrius. And according to the books, there's no megaphrius there. So we we get out of the car, tell the taxi driver to pick us up in 45 minutes, come back in 45 minutes, and we go track down the megaphreus. That was a new species. That one hasn't been described yet. And then what was funny, in my graduating year in 2017, when I went to the university, uh, one of the other students there, Bilal, um, he wanted to do a documentary on on me and finding this new species because I was talking about I needed to go get some more specimens. So he brings his camera and, and we go to this location to look for some additional specimens of this one Freus. And while we're there uh, trying to find the species, I hear a different megaphrius calling. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, that is also a Freus, but that's not the megaphrius that we're here for. You know, we're here for Megafreus A, and now we have a Megafreus B, and that's also a new species. So it's, wow. it's just crazy.
1: Yeah. But you once you get an ear for frogs, yeah, you also get an ear for, I don't know that. That's not in my yeah. catalog. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. And yeah, so either, yeah, I've never heard that call before. Let me go track it down and and it's either something common or um occasionally it's something completely different
1: that's so awesome it's it's just also spurred a memory because it uh you and i were part of a group that went to to vietnam Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there was a particular night when we we got some pretty cool uh frogs up there uh in up in uh cook uh national park and uh, you you uh spotted a theloderma aspirum oh, yeah. and, you know and just uh, so or uh, not uh, a quarter Cortico- yeah uh, the theloderma corticale, the mossy the frog mossy was so bro. cool but we also got a mega megaphrius megafrius uh pachyproctus oh yeah uh-huh. and it was calling and so i was able to record the call and put a hurt mapper record in for that call so <laughs> So that 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 was my uh, that was like a cool moment for me to to not only see a new species but also to record its call yeah yeah and, and you know stick it in the database too so you you can go and look that one up and listen to the call so
0: yeah I had never seen that species before before that trip
1: that was a new one for you too yeah. so um so this this whole thing is um of course I I have not been, I'm not going to count Hong Kong as part of going to China I have not been to China but but I have some tangential things here that uh, I'm just se- severely interested in these things that are happening to you, uh, with, with these, these species. Um, but you don't just, uh, I mean, uh, you record frog calls and in this new paper, and I think in the, in the, the mega freest paper too, I don't have it in front of me, but, um, the, the call is part of the identification Of the animal, of the description of the animal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here is its call. Here's its, you know, you you the notes notes and you print out the the pattern, Mm -hmm. the sound pattern, and all that. So, because it like birds, they have distinct calls too. But these frogs all have a distinct call, so that they don't get confused with when it's time to reproduce. So, so that's an important part of the species description. And and I also noticed that. The, for example, the Meg- Mega paper that you wrote describing that new uh, species, it also has you know what, what we would call uh, morphometrics, right? Yeah. You're you're, yeah. you're not just relying on the genes, you're not just relying on the call, but you're also talking about the physical characteristics of the animal are also in that description. Yeah. So
0: we we want all three to be to come to the same conclusion that it's distinct. Yeah,
1: yeah, and. um. Uh, you know, and I think I told you back then when I read the I read the paper we were in Peru and I you had brought copies of the paper and I read it now he's just kinda like this is this is how it's done, ladies and gentlemen. This is uh, and and I'm I'm so impressed with that with that paper. For what it's worth, the layman the layman is impressed by the paper. But anyway, it was just like, yeah, this is how you sew it up and and leave no doubt, right?
0: Yeah, because I, I don't like um papers I don't like species that are just based on genetics. I, I don't like that. Yes. And um, so I think it should at least have genetics and morphology, and then with frogs because they're uh, they actually make sounds. You have a third factor, acoustics.
1: Yeah, so that's that's awesome. So I assume you're going to continue doing that. And you, I know I remember too. You know, you kind of got involved with um, frog record, recording frog calls and, and learning how to. Uh, get good recordings of them and edit the recordings mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. yeah. that too. So that's something you have a lot of experience with too.
0: Yep. Yep. Somebody on, as, is actually on the Field Hurt forum, I think, uh, wrote up a really good tutorial on how to clean up um, frog audio uh, on Audacity, the program Audacity. Oh, on
1: Audacity. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if it'll, I wonder if I could use it because uh, I use uh, Adobe Audition. Maybe I can, maybe I can do it with Adobe Audition.
0: Yeah, maybe hmm, have a look. Yeah, because yeah, the tutorial I, I have it somewhere. I'll uh, send you the link of the.
1: Tutorial. Okay, that'd be cool. Uh,
0: and that it kind
1: of brings me. I am um, going to talk about your book, but I'm going to save that for later. But also, this kind of brings me back to the the Fielder Forum, which you know, for all you young kids out there, it's uh, Fielder Forum was the place to go back in the day. It was before the Facebook. Facebook kind of uh, trashed everything. Yeah. Uh, and that was where the Herpers hung out and, um, you became, uh, I want to say you became famous. You, you became legendary for your, what we call the China posts, even though some of them were elsewhere besides China. But, uh, and, and folks, if you've never been there, if you haven't looked at these, it's just worth going there and looking for Kevin's posts because you put everything you had in there into it. Kevin, you put your heart and soul about what happened to you, uh, in China, not just, well, I saw this cool racer, and then the next day I saw a cool frog, and here they are. Your posts are so detailed. The You know, in, in terms of the the habitat, who you were with, what you ate, um, tourist photos, maps, um, just this, um, um, and, and that's sort of the visual stuff, right, that, that you would put in these posts. And they're very long. But they were just enthralling, engrossing things to read. But you also would tell, you would describe how you felt about certain things, or experiences, or you would describe social interactions with some of the the locals. You know, like you end up visiting somebody new, and you'd have to go in their house and have a bunch of alcohol, and (laughs) you never you never knew where these things were going, or you got served you know food you'd never had before. and uh, you you document your your struggles learning Chinese and and uh, so all of this st- this stuff that uh, to me is is just there's just so much meat on the bone there that stuff is just legendary and I, I still go back once in a while and, and read through some of those posts because I think they're just so informative and uh, and, and really honest I mean they're really honest about you know. It's it's not all success, you know. It's not all edited for success like so many people yeah, yeah, yeah. might do. So um, I haven't told you before. I've just uh, really enjoyed them. I really hope folks go out there and and uh, check out these posts because they're definitely worth your time. Their time. Um. So, uh, and what what made you start doing that? Is was that was that a, something internal to you already? Did or did you make a decision sure, sure, sure. To, um, to document that stuff? Those tough.
0: those were. A ton of fun, um, to, to write, but in the, in the beginning, uh, it did not start off with that intention because in the beginning, I didn't even know about the field her forum. So let's go back to 2006, my first trip to China. And in where I was, which was, um, which is in uh, Northwestern Hubei province, um, there was one internet cafe in the entire town. So, you know, there's no Wi-Fi. The hotels that you're at, they don't have internet. You had to go to a internet cafe and you could, you know, buy an hour and look on the internet for an hour. And it was slow and everything. And so, in those days, I would also, because I was also pretty bored, uh, because the, the only English TV was in town in the hotel and they only played four movies back to back the same four movies. <laughs> so I saw, um, which Terminator, which uh, it wasn't Terminator. I think it was true lies. I saw true lies like three to four times a day, every day that I was at that hotel. Wow. Cause that was my only source of English, um, audio. Um, so I was doing a lot of writing in my, on my laptop and my parents had no way of keeping up with me, so I told them, yeah, sure, I will You know, send you guys an email every maybe once a week, maybe twice a week uh, to give you an update on how things are doing. So I would write in Word uh, everything from what was happening on day one, day two, day three towards my family. So the original posts um, were meant for family and friends and... I'd send these emails back and, you know, dad and mom would be like, oh my God, you know, I feel like I'm there, like your descriptions. And, and so these are just descriptions at the time. I didn't include pictures in these emails because, you know, it took forever just to send a word document on these uh, old internets. Um, So I was very descriptive and yeah, everybody loved it. Family and friends loved the descriptions. And then um, towards the end of my trip, in 2006, uh, one of my I found a snake, and I wasn't sure what it was. So I sent some pictures to a colleague, and one of my friends said, "Hey, why don't you post some of these pictures that you're unsure of on the Field herb forum? Because I'm sure people would love to see, and some of them might have some ideas." So I was like, "Oh, the Field Herp forum? You know what's that? Send me a link, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So I sent. My first post actually on the field form, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure this was my very first post is really just a list of images like frog A, frog B, frog C. And I think Kenny Ray was the first one to comment and was like, <laughs> oh, my God, this post blows me away, et cetera, et cetera. And then somebody else commented and said, you know, can you please, please send more, show us more of this. And so I was like, all right, fine. I'll just take my emails that I sent to family and friends, pop in some pictures and then that way people will have the whole shebang. You'll, you'll get the, the travels, the difficulty, the culinary aspects, the cultural aspects, you'll get it all. And that's what, you know, after I did post number one, everybody's like, wow, please more.
1: Yeah. And okay. So that makes some, that makes sense to me because you start, you know, uh, you started out doing one thing, but it's like, well, I've already got all this. I've already got all this. I've already dumped everything out of my head into this into this writing. I'm going to share that w- with these these people as well.
0: Yeah, and and so so that was 2006, and then after that, um, I started writing for the forum. So in 2008, all of that documentation was for the for the community.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's because you know they reacted appropriately
0: and I didn't even know what the field reform was at the time and once I realized what it was I was like wow this is a great place to share photos and experiences
1: yeah yeah and of course prior to that there was this huge void
0: mm-hmm.
1: who would know that anybody was seeing cool frogs and snakes in china yeah
0: yeah
1: who would know that how would you you wouldn't know that yeah, you wouldn't. so uh, and I remember I think maybe it even predates you I remember Scott Lupian posting about a, a, a racer he found on the great wall yeah um I think it began with the Z the genus I can't remember what genus it was now but it was like wow people are going to China and finding herbs on
0: the wall yeah
1: on the great wall this is um this is amazing so it was different to now everything we're all so blase about you know you can go to any number of facebook groups and people will post pictures from various exploits around the world but back then that was that was new um
0: that was the community
1: yes and the community didn't even know it was starved for for all of that entertainment yeah. so to speak uh until they got it and then they're you know just it's just sort of blew everybody's mind so um and of course it's one thing to post something, you know, if I posted something that happened to me in Illinois, it would be like, yeah, that's pretty cool, you know, Illinois, you know. But if somebody posts something from China or South America or the Philippines or whatever, ooh, that would get everybody's attention because it was so Unique. new, uncharted territory. Yeah, right?
0: yeah. Yeah, those-
1: yeah so uh, I'll put some show links in the show notes so people can go and, and look at some of those posts. I, I think they're pretty cool.
0: When I was writing up the Little Frog one um, – yeah, you know, on the bottom, of it, I said, you know, P.S., I'm going to get back to doing these. The The reason I had stopped and I know exactly where I stopped. It was uh, fall of 2013. It was on our Thailand trip. I have the post basically written up. But the reason I never finished it was because I was still trying to identify some of these frogs ah. in, in that because I didn't want to put a picture up there without a proper ID. But and that. That delay then caused a delay from all the 2014 stuff. And then I got too busy and blah, blah, blah. And so I think I'm just going to not bother trying to identify those last remaining skinks and frogs from Thailand. And I'll just go and put up the 2013 Thailand trip and then begin China 2014. Okay. Because as – as we talked at one point, it's just a, such a great way to remember experiences. And when I yes. go back and read them, I, I just love it. It's it's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, because you, you can't walk around with all this stuff in your head. So it's good to have it in, in uh, offline storage, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You can pull it up and, and revisit all that. So. Was
0: it you that was telling me that I should put these in book form, the, the Field Heart form? Stories? Oh, I
1: think I I probably have, and it's it's I was planning to mention that on the, <laughs> uh, in, in the middle of this recording too. I think that would be great at some point.
0: I, I have given some thought to that.
1: Yeah, in all your free time, yeah. uh, that might be that might be something pretty cool. Um, I, I don't know what you'd call it, but uh, uh, that would be a, a very unique herp travelogue yeah. or, uh, I don't even want to call it a travelogue. I don't know what you'd call it, but just a, just a, such a unique experience. So, um, you know, and I think of the only other person I can think of who's, you know, re- wrote about herpes in China was Clifford Pope Yeah, for crying in the night. Yeah. And that was what, 75 years ago, maybe or uh, we're, oh, we're approaching
0: a hundred years.
1: Oh my gosh! Okay, 19- 1935
0: so. is when out when he put out his awesome book. That's still one of the best books on the subject.
1: Yeah, um, well, I can't. Th- I've seen a copy of it. I would love to have a copy of the it.
0: Reptiles of China. I have. Yeah, I, I got a copy off of um, Facebook. One of the little groups on Facebook, and when it arrived, I opened it up, and it has um, Carl Schmidt's signature.
1: Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh. And I was
0: like, I was like, is this who I think it is? And I I, I took pictures of the signature and I, I put it up on, uh, on Facebook. I'm like, Hey, can anybody verify this? And, uh, some guy was like, yeah, I worked, uh, down the hall from him. I was like, yeah, that's his signature.
1: Oh my God. So
0: now I have it in a envelope. I haven't even taken it out really.
1: Yeah, I understand. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that's amazing. Um, yeah, and Clifford Pope um, obviously a lot of the, the younger generation probably haven't been uh, come across him, but he was he was sort of a populist, oh, he was a so popular writer, if you will. He brought uh, snakes and other critters to the forefront for the general public.
0: And even in that, uh, the Reptiles of China, um, yeah, Reptiles of China. He thought he talks about some of his um, travel. He, he doesn't just do the the herps. At the beginning, he has um, some discussion about yeah, I was on this train for this many hours, and then we went to this location. You had to walk, you know, a day's hike up this hill, and and he went to some of the same places I went to. Um, so that was one of the really cool things when I found this um, that one megafrius. So Quatun, uh, uh, the the village of Tun is in Wuishan. It's now spelled Guadun. So, you know, back in the day, Peking is now Beijing, um, right. things like that. The spelling was different. So, Quatun is Guadun. And so, in Wuyishan you have this tiny little village up at the top of the mountain called Guadun. And that's where Megafrius Quatunensis is found. And that's where this third uh, Megafrius came from as well. I was like, this is so cool. You know, it's been almost 100 years and actually Megafrius Batgarai. Its type locality is Wushan, is Guadun Village, uh, Quatunensis. Its type locality is Guadun, and now this third one, it also its type locality is Guadun, and Guadun or Wushan in general um, has about twenty-four to thirty-five herps, with their type locality being that village. Wow! It's scientifically, from a herpetological perspective. It's one of the most significant places in China. Tons of new species have their type locality there.
1: Wow. And did, and did Pope uh, collect any of those yeah. type localities mm-hmm. too? Yep. Okay. That makes sense.
0: Yep. And he, he went there wow. specifically because of the previous uh, people that went there. So Armand David went there in 1870s. You know, he's the guy that discovered the giant panda. Um, and he discovered some other things. He's what the giant salamander is named after. Um. So oh. he wrote about his expedition to Wui in the 1870s, and that inspired um, Irish ornithologist, Latouche, to go there to look for birds. So he went there in the 1890s, and he found a whole bunch of herps, and he sent them back to um, London and the uh, – who was it? Belinger. Belinger described all the species that uh, Latouche found. Because um, he wasn't a herpetologist, so he sent them. Somebody else identified them. He described maybe a dozen new species. Bollinger or sorry, Bellinger did, um, based on Latouché's findings. And so then, in the nineteen twenties, Pope went there because of Latouché's discoveries. And I see Latouché went there because of Armand David's discoveries. So it's this kind of. So
1: there's some layers there, yeah. layers of history, herpetological history there yeah. that you can appreciate. Yeah wow very cool that's that's kind of amazing um and you obviously you're you're going to keep your ears and eyes open for more more uh species and i'm sure you probably have a few more places you'd like to visit with the idea of who i could probably you know i want to go here and maybe roll down the window and listen and and fill in some of those uh fill in some more gaps but uh you talk about Pope, you know, taking a train and, you know, big hikes and all that. It, it, it's still not easy for you to get around in some of these places either, right? I mean, no, 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 you, no. You just can't get in a car and, and drive to nope. here and drive there. You, you've got to – sometimes you take a taxi, right? Yeah,
0: there's no uh, – international licenses aren't recognized. So in order for me to mm-hmm. drive, I have to get um, a Chinese driver's license, which I I can do. I just haven't gone through the all the paperwork. Um, but obviously as a tourist, most people aren't going to do that if they don't live there. So a a normal tourist, you fly to a country, if you have a driver's license in your home country, you can then rent a car. So they don't really have car rentals. Uh, they do, but it's not as common as it is in other countries and you have to have a Chinese driver's license, et cetera, et cetera. So no, I'm not able to just get in my own personal vehicle or even rent a personal vehicle and drive around. And Yeah, trains, high-speed railway, is uh, the way to go, in my opinion. I love them. Um, When I first went there in the early days, I don't think they had any high-speed railways yet. Um, But now, like, to Wuishan on those first two years, it was like a 14-hour train ride overnight. So you would board the train at um, 8 a.m., or sorry, 8 p.m., You'd go to sleep. It's a sleeper train, which those are also a lot of fun. Um, that's one of the really cool experiences of China is the, is the train rides, uh, even the older, slower trains. And then the next morning, you would wake up and you'd be at your destination for the Wushan trip. So that was back in the day. It was 14 hours. Now it's four hours on the high-speed uh, wow. train. Wow. So holy cow! So yeah, you you take a train from Nanjing to whatever location you want to, and then at that point you um you hire a taxi or um or you have a friend that's local that picks you up.
1: Gotcha. And you still have to walk sometimes. Oh
0: yeah, of sh- yeah of course. Good distances. Yeah, so so yeah. like the Wu Shan place that I would survey, Guadun Village. Um, oh my god! From the hotel to Guadun Village, I I did it. A couple of times, hiked it a couple of times, it would probably take me, I think, six hours. No, 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 no. Three hours. Three hours to get up there. And then three hours to get back. So when I was doing the surveys and actually had a little bit more money, um, I would hire a car to take me to the top, drop me off, and then I'd walk down. Because, you know, walking down, no big deal. But the steepness of the incline, hiking up, it was just not very efficient.
1: Gotcha, that makes sense.
0: Uh, so I think now I
1: want to bring this around to your book uh, that you've just published. Um, which I'm looking at the cover. It's it's called "The Asian Rat Snakes and Kin of Greater China," and um, this is a fabulous book um, for a. You know, an old man who, when he was a kid, China was like a big blank thing on the map. And to look through this book and see all of these different serpents that that live in China and areas around China and then have range maps in there to see where where exactly in China they live and their habitats and all that. Just kind of an amazing experience just to to go through this book. And of course, like um, other people who have this book, I'm thinking... When can I go? How do I get there? And you know what could I see? Because it's it's kind of amazing. I, you know, I'm not ready to spend uh, astronomical amounts of money. And I'll I'll wait until things settle down. But uh, talk about an, an an inspiring book. How did you come to how did you come to put this together?
0: Uh, that's also another funny and interesting story, of course. Um, so uh, let's see. That was. It was 2020 so in the fall of 2020 my contract was ending my my first contract was ending it was 2017 to 2020 and um as part of my um contract list they wanted me to have one book done in those three years Mm. and so i had been working on a book called the venomous snakes of china for for a long time and so I was still working away at it, and then you know I see my deadline kind of approaching, and I'm like, you know, I basically did about 75% of the Venomous book in about two weeks' time. Um, it's it's really easy to make big jumps, but as you get to the, you know, the next 25%, uh, the grind is super slow. And then when you're at the last five oh. percent, oh my god, it took forever. And then to go from 99 to 100 was probably two months, maybe. Um, so anyway, I was like, uh, I, based on the amount of effort I'm putting into this Venomous book, I was like, I don't think I can finish it in time. So, you know, let me think, what's another group of snakes that's really popular and um, might serve as a better feeler for like testing the waters to how good something like this would be, would do. Um, i like, you know, the rat snakes. I, I know a lot of people that have Asian rat snakes. Um, I'm like, they're gorgeous. Everybody loves rat snakes. Um, I was like, and there's only 19 species of rat snakes. I can probably knock that out in a month or two. So I was like, let me just do a book on the rat snakes. Because one of my favorite books growing up was, and this is part of the inspiration for the title, um, was A Guide to A Alaffian Kin. Or a hobbyist guide to a Lapian kin, yeah, and it's a great book on a lot of species, and it t- talks about the care and everything. And f- as most people do, we usually had snakes as pets growing up, if not still. Um, I was like, I want to do a book that you know covers everything, not just the natural history and not just the scientific details, but I also want a book that covers longevity and how to care for the species in the event that somebody does want to keep it as a pet, which, you know, I try to say, you shouldn't just go out and pillage the the wilds, but, you know, if you can find a captive bred specimen, et cetera, et cetera, do it responsibly, then sure, you, you can try that. It's your prerogative. So I put, started working on the book, started working on the rat snake book. And the more I, as with so many other projects I do, the more I got into the book, I went down further and further rabbit holes. And now I have this big list of rat snake projects that I'm planning on doing whenever I finally return to China. Ah. Um, but yeah, I ended up putting a lot more into that book than I had initially suspected I would.
1: Yeah, uh, just a random page here. You have um, the the red-tailed rat snake uh, Ghan-
0: Soma.
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but you also have snakes that look like it. There's yeah. a great mm-hmm. series of four pictures of, uh, um, uh, let's see, uh, there's Gana and then there's a couple of vipers and the, uh, the big er- earthworm. Yeah, is the greater, it? Uh, greater green snake. Yeah, cyclophyops. Major. Uh, yeah. So that, that's that's kind of cool. So you're not, you know, yeah. It, you're also. It's
0: meant to be a hybrid between a field guide and a reference book, because yeah, I, I wanted. The reason I wrote it bilingually is you know there are so many times I've been in China and I, a okay so the whole inspiration for doing a book um, is because there are no English books on Chinese herbs, no English field guides, which seems crazy. I know that's why I said Pope's book from 1935 is still the best book on that subject. There is no other reptiles of China in English. There's lots of hurt books in Chinese with the scientific name and the images are so, so uh, they're getting better nowadays. Um, but the maps were horrible when I was in China in 06. Yeah. You know, I had two books, two field guides. And again, like the, a lot of the images were just drawings, um, really, really bad drawings. And yeah. most of them, you couldn't even look at the drawing and then look at the specimen that you have in front of you and make an identification of them. I think I complained about this in some of those uh, field herp forum posts. So, you know, on the table for a long time, I've said I've wanted to create a revitalization of Pope's book, uh, do a Reptiles of China, but in English. And then the other thing – which I've come to learn has not been very successful is I would make my own little kind of English pamphlet whenever I'd go to China on a certain region. And so if we're looking for particular habitat or particular species, I'd show the image to a local and say, yeah, where can we find this? And he might not know, and I'm try to say, okay, well, you know, it likes this kind of habitat. So, you know, where's this kind of habitat? But if you point at the English, they don't know English, not all of them, not right. especially not the local farmers out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so it would be nice to have a a paragraph in English that describes, you know, the habitat. And then below that, have a paragraph in Chinese where you can say, you know, here's the habitat description. Can you now point to where I can find this sort of uh. habitat? So that was the idea is um, I, I had these pamphlets and many of my Chinese friends are like, oh, my God, this is great. Do you have it in Chinese? I was like, no, no, just English. And so that was kind of like where I was like, hmm, maybe it would be good to put it in both languages because I've seen yes. a couple of books that do that, usually Spanish and English.
1: Yes, yes. I've seen a few like that. So I was going to say, I, I I don't know if this is unique, but it's it's if it's not the only one, it's one of the few. In English and Chinese, I think. Um, I think the Taiwan field guide I looked at was Chinese strictly somewhere. in Chinese, so yep. which is a nice little field guide, it by is. the way. It I'd is. Love to get my hands on a copy of it. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and uh, I kind of like it's rich with photographs. It's got a lot of great photographs in it. Um, and did, did you get some help with those, or are the all, photos all yours, or did other people help you with some of the harder-to-get things?
0: Yeah, the vast majority are mine, but um, I would say maybe 60 to 70% are mine, and then the remaining 30% are friends. Okay. Because, yeah, there are definitely some that I don't, I've never seen.
1: Right, right. So, always good to have friends who can come through for you with photographs. Yep, yep, yep.
0: Most herpers wow. tend to be photographers, so that works out.
1: Yes, so this this re, uh, fulfilled the your contract and also um, gave you a nice book.
0: Yeah,
1: at the same and this is uh, this book is available. You can get it on Amazon. Um, Probably elsewhere?
0: Yeah. So Amazon only sells the soft cover version of it. And okay. Lulu, Lulu.com sells the hardcover version. Ah, okay. And that one has a little bit thicker paper. Uh, the colors are a little bit better. And um, I prefer the hardcover. I, I wish I could sell it on Amazon, the hardcover, but um, they only do soft covers. So Lu- yeah, Lulu so, is where the hardcover is. Yeah.
1: I learned that too when I put out a tortoise book. Oh yeah, um, back in the day, only soft covers. But that's fine. Um, Yeah, I have the soft cover, but I'd I'd like to take a look at the the hard cover. Like to see if I can get a copy of that. So, Um, so I'll I'll put some links in the show notes to the book too, so that folks can uh, check it out. It's, It's very cool. I can't. I can't speak for the Chinese part of it, but the, the English part is very well done. It, it, so. <laughs> it took.
0: So my friend in Shanghai, um, one of the guy, the guy that was helping with all the uh, testing and sending food to everybody, he did the translation, and um, man, it took a long time. But he initially we tried to divide it into like five different people to to help, but when we they submitted their translations, uh, Jingzong was like these are really bad. He's like, they're not doing a very good at describing, you know, the scientific words that you are using. So he's like, I'm just going to do the whole thing myself.
1: Ah, okay. Hats off, Hats off to, to this guy for realizing what you needed. <laughs>
0: yeah, he, he's great. He's, he's actually yeah. translated some of my Field Hurt Forum posts into Chinese and then published them on not their version of Field Hurt Forum, but on a... Just another website, I guess, because okay. he he does a lot of tor- tortoise stuff. And um, he's like, can I use some of these stories and translate them into Chinese so people can see, you know, what it was like for you as an American to come to China and write up all the stuff? Because he also said your descriptions are fantastic, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, go, go for it. Do it. And um, they were a big hit, of course, as well. Yeah. And so then when it came time to translate the book, I reached out to him and said, Hey, do you have any interest in working on this with me? He's like, I'd I'd love to.
1: So maybe in future for future publications, he can help you too.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to make the venomous one, uh, bilingual or not, because it's, it's going to be way bigger. I mean, this book that was 19 species and that's like 200 pages. I think that was partly because of the limit that Amazon put on the length of the book. Um, but I, I can't do that for the next book. The next book has 107 species.
1: Oh my gosh. Okay.
0: So we're looking at five times. Yeah. And so I don't know.
1: Yeah. So you can, you can cut the length in half by just doing English.
0: Yeah. Basically. Even though Chinese for one page of English, Chinese takes up either half or less than half. Okay. They are super succinct in their speech.
1: Okay. So it would still cut it down. It would would still cut it
0: down. Um, But, yeah, I think it's just too monumental. And, you know, this book still, um, it hasn't been approved yet in China. So by writing it in Chinese, it hasn't benefited any of the the Chinese populace, other than a few friends that have uh, brought a whole bunch of them. But it's expensive because they're shipping internationally.
1: Oh yeah. Um, okay.
0: So yeah. So we'll see.
1: Okay. Again, difficulties. Yep. With uh, being somewhere, being in China or, or somewhere like China, things can be difficult in terms of getting things that you take for granted in the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard. It's hard for people to not uh, appreciate the rat snakes of China. There's so many iconic species such as, uh, Mandarin rat snake and. Um, beauty snakes and and so on and so forth. They're, it's it's just um, that that amazing to get a book with these species in the book and and not in uh, you know like on some hobbyist page or something. It's concrete literature on these on these herps. Yeah, so. I,
0: a, a physical book definitely has such a better feeling. You know, I would as I work on the drafts, I would print off um, instead of looking at a PDF on my screen, I would print off a draft. And then flip through it because it makes such a difference versus looking on a computer screen. Yes. When you're like, oh, I don't like the position of that photo or, you know, this should be reshaped or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I I get a better feel for how the book should be. Also, I think other parts of your brain take over when, when you're looking at uh, things that are printed. Uh, you're looking at an object rather than a screen, I think. I think so, too. There's some difference there and how you perceive that. So, yeah, I understand that completely. Uh, did you um, – for example, let's talk about uh, the Mandarin rat snake. Which I, is, I was uh,
0: about to interject when you were talking about that. When that very first year in 2006, that was the snake I wanted to find was a Mandarin rat because they are so iconic.
1: Yeah. I was going to – I remember I, – I think I remember you finding some really heartbreaking DORs. Yes,
0: I found – I think two or three DORs before I finally found my live one.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. And have you seen more than one since? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, now I've, yeah. I've found them in multiple different locations. I am fortunate,
1: blessed, whatever you want to call it, to have seen one.
0: Wow. Oh, in Taiwan, right? In Taiwan. Oh, I've not found one uh, in Taiwan yet.
1: Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Caldwell and I. Shout out to Kevin. Um, and... You know, it struck me, you know, we're up in the mountains and it's foggy. It's 54, 56 degrees, wow. um, or at altitude and, and this thing's in the road. And it's, you know, of course it's an amazing experience, but it just struck me that this is the, this thing is a mountain Kingsnake. It's, you know, it's living up. It, it's not, uh, active at high temperatures. It's, yeah, yeah, active, moving around at fairly cool temperatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it you know doesn't uh, you know it's it's the sun's not out all the time, and 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 it it just struck me as like, well, this is sort of the equivalent of a because that's what you do when you go to another country too. You start comparing what you find to what you have back home, and you couldn't help but doing it. Yeah. Like this to me, this thing is more like a mountain king snake than anything else. Not that it's exactly the same yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. but. You know that, that's what struck me about that that snake. So, um, did
0: you see any king rats while you were in Taiwan? Because they're I did, okay.
1: I did. Uh, we got one of those as well. Um, I think it was about five feet, and it was a god awful mess. <laughs> um, not only I took people talking. Well, yeah, they smell right, but, but you know you handle them, and you you have this slimy disgustingly slimy thing that or essence of them that they exude and uh, boy you know, I had to it took a lot of uh, alcohol wipes to get get my hands clean I still can smell that thing in my nose uh, <laughs> I, I, lo- I
0: love king rats they, and so when you're talking yeah. about comparing them I usually compare them to a hybrid between a king snake a rat snake and a pituophus
1: yeah they kind of got the, the the pine snake bulk, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 apt. Um, also, uh, I got a beauty snake there too, Oh, very uh, with, nice. which wow. Kevin spotted in a wall wow. in a little tiny um, hole in a wall. Managed to extract it. So I, um, for me, that was like the three big snakes uh, that I wanted to see and never thought I would see any of them. Uh, you know like it 's like boom, 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 so um so when I open your book and they're you know it's like oh man I, it it just brings all that back to me, and makes me want to go and, and see more of them so yeah. so in, in terms of um in terms of the rat snakes it, was there an a, one experience that that stands out above the rest uh,
0: um i I have a lot of memories that stand out. Um, I'm trying to think one of my more recent ones was um, one of those years I went to look for the uh, the Megafreus. It was early, it was May, May of 2015. It was that year when I found like 19 of them, 19 of those specimens. When I, so I cracked the code and found out that it's all about water. So on that first night, when I found like five or six of them that first night, as I was walking back down the hill... Yeah. So I did my survey in the tea plantation. I found my five specimens. I'm like, oh, this is awesome night. Um, okay. You know, it's 2 AM, 1 AM. It's time to head back to the hotel. So I start walking back down the path and right in the middle of the path is this gorgeous three foot, four foot, no, three foot, three foot Mandarin rat slithering right in front of me. I'm like, ah, great. Cool. You know, pick him up. Uh, there's, I have a video on YouTube called Herping in Wuishan, Shan, and this that snake is on that video. Um, and then, so then I get to the main road, and I start hiking down the main road, and I see this monstrous king rat in on the road and going into the shoulder of the mountain. And he's also in that video, and I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know if I have a bag big enough for this snake. And he ended up being. Uh, let me do the conversion again. He was, I think, two hundred and twenty-four centimeters. So he was eighty-eight inches. Oh my gosh!
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And as big around as your wrist or more, probably.
0: Oh, he was. Um, yeah, at least, yeah, somewhere between your wrist and your forearm. Ugh. He was monstrous. So yeah, a seven, seven point three feet. And, Amazing. <laughs> and girthy and, yeah. I was,
1: and, and, and they they remain in Lafey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still – Lafey Carinata. Yeah. Carinata, I guess.
0: And, yeah, Carinata. Yeah, Scott and I were having a discussion about them recently because, you know, they have a cat-eye pupil. They don't have an elliptical pupil. If you turn to the first page of Lafey Carinata in that book uh, – so, yeah, if you go to page uh, 57 – Yes. And, I mean, there's, I think, only one or two other rat snakes that have uh, an elliptical pupil. And so, it's just really weird, in my opinion. And yet, yeah. they, have, they have keeled scales, like super, which is part of the, also part of the pituophus feel, is they're very rough, which most rat snakes are not. Well, not very rough. They're semi, some of them.
1: I think I said to Kevin when I first picked the, the one up that we found, it was like, this feels like a bull snake.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And of course, they eat other snakes as their one of their preferences, which is not also very typical of rat snakes.
1: Yeah, the uh, the photos you have in here are awesome, but the uh, the one of the adult on the would be on the left. Uh, it's just kind of a headshot, and, and the scales have like an uh, an outline of you know the they're kind of rimmed in a darker color. Um, it just makes the entire head just kind of. Just kind of stand out and pop. It's just amazing. Yeah, there, there's other species of snake that do that, but this is one of them. Plus, you have the elliptical pupil, so it just becomes one badass serpent. They so. are
0: very cool snakes. I like them a lot. Um, when I was talking about going down a rabbit hole uh, when doing this book, that rabbit hole would be page one forty nine, the bamboo rat snake complex. Oh, okay, and then the oh, Oreo cryptophus. Yeah, and then if you go to you know page one fifty seven and one fifty eight, you'll see all the uh, juvenile variation and the adult variation and the different subspecies. Oh yes, um, for
1: it, it's kind of hard to we'll describe this for radio, but this is a two page. This is basically a, a rat snake centerfold, yeah. If you will covers with, with map two pages. It's a range map. With pictures around the perimeter that point to e- each of the ranges, the appropriate ranges for the snake, and it's pictures of all the different forms. And this this alone is worth the price of the book. <laughs> the,
0: the, the top page are the juveniles, and the bottom page are the adults.
1: Yes, yes. So it's same range map, but the just has different pictures between adults and juveniles, and it's a it's amazing. So is it was this your uh brainchild to come up with this this mm-hmm. type of map
0: yeah, yeah i love making maps
1: yeah i i uh i would love to see more of this kind of work cuz this is i know folks folks that have this book will know exactly what we're talking about it's kind of a spectacular way of um using one map to illustrate a bunch of different species where they're at and what they look like Vari- all at once you get information overload yeah, yeah, yeah. right there boom excellent work yeah, I really enjoyed that. So I encourage folks to take a look at that book. You can get, like you, say, you can get it on Lulu or you can get it on Amazon. I'll put some links in the show notes too. And and you have some, you have some YouTube videos too. My gosh, you're all over the place. So uh, I'll try to look look those up, and hunt those down.
0: Yeah, the YouTube thing also kind of started by accident as well. Um, initially, I was just putting on some random Chinese uh, videos, and one of my videos of some monkeys, uh, from Wuishan, Shan, uh, of course, you know, it was just a, a random, some, some baby monkeys playing with their parents and older siblings. And I put it up there and, um, I'm telling my friends about it and they're like, you should monetize that. Cause at the time that video had 13 million views. I was like, Hey, <laughs> one of my videos has 13 million views. And my friend, Mike and Nate were like, you should monetize that. I was like, monetize it. You can make money off of YouTube. And so I went down that and checked off the little thing that lets me monetize it. And now it's up to 55 million views.
1: Oh my God. There's nothing
0: special about it. I mean, it's cute if you like nature, but there's for it to go viral like that. I don't understand it, you know, because okay, it's not, I don't do the stuff that, a lot of people do with sensationalize or speak or anything. It's just a six-minute video of some monkeys playing. That's all. Obviously, it
1: appeals to people on some level. Yeah. So, yeah. so that was your your intro to YouTube.
0: Yeah, that's what got me a hundred and eleven thousand subscribers. Was that one video?
1: <laughs> wow, that's amazing! Holy cow! So you put some other stuff up there yeah, too?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's some just short little clips mostly of herping in China.
1: Very good. Okay, I'll take a look. See, I want to see the monkey one too. So,
0: <laughs> well, let's see.
1: Uh, we've talked about your books and and some of the species you discovered. And I know you're itching to get back to China. What are you doing in the meantime? How does how does this work for you over here? Well,
0: uh, being here is kind of a bittersweet situation. So, um, yeah, you know, I I love being here. I love being in the U.S. Having access to American herps and all my old Stomping grounds I used to go to, um, and additionally because of my mom's situation, um, I'm I kind of have to be here. So in so 2020, you know, I came back and then ended up getting stuck. At, you know, once all the borders internationally closed, and then so that was in March, and then in May, my mom was having some neck pain and was basically diagnosed with metastatic. Uh, breast cancer. So she had breast cancer and now metastasized and had gone to her bones. And so she had to have surgery and get a vertebrae removed from her neck. Um, so ever since then, you know, we've been dealing with chemo and all the other um, right aspects of, of going through that. And there's no way my dad would have been able to do it solo. So me being here to help out with her has been another, benefit to being here yeah but yeah yeah you know, at the same time it sucks being away from my work but at the same time i i need to be here to help her out
1: gotcha and of course you know i wish her all the best too with that
0: yeah i mean it's it's a uh, metastatic so they said there is no cure for it the only thing you can do uh, is treat it make things as comfortable as possible for as long as possible
1: right well, i'm sorry to hear that and then uh, again uh, my best wishes to your mom and any your dad. I and mean, this is probably hard on your whole family. So.
0: Yeah, yeah it is. It is. Yeah. I mean, okay. Cancer sucks. Everybody knows it.
1: Yeah, it does. It sure does. And, uh, well, I'm glad uh, there's uh, at least a good reason for you to be in the States.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm not helping her, I'm uh, working on book number two. Okay. Or, and that's or, the pit viper. Uh, just venomous. So that Ven- lapids, oh, vipers so, yeah. and rear fanged.
1: Excellent. Okay, yeah. So, do you have um, an idea when that might be done? Or? I
0: think I can ha- have it done by the end of the year. Okay, that's what
1: I'm hoping for. All right. Well, you'll, you have to let me know when you're, it, it's ready to to hit the uh, the inner tubes, as it were. <laughs> and uh, so I'll, I'll I'll let people know. We'll put the put the word out for you.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know for sure.
1: Well, I I'm going to thanks for your time. First of all. Um, appreciate you giving me 90 minutes of your, your time here no problem. and, uh, it's, it's good to talk to you. Um, I've enjoyed the time we've spent in the field. It's been, we've done a couple of trips, uh, we were in Peru and, uh, saw you down in the Everglades earlier this year yeah, and, on,
0: uh, on Matt's surprise birthday party. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Kind of a random thing. And then, uh, of course, uh, in Vietnam, that was a lot yeah. of fun. So, uh, um, maybe one of these days I'll come visit you in China. That would be, that cool. would be great.
0: Uh, I think Dad and I are thinking about doing another Peru trip maybe next year. I don't know. Oh, wow. Or, or okay. the year after. But yeah. But yeah. That would be good. It would be cool to, uh, if you make a list of some snakes you want to knock off your list in China, then that'll help me determine what place <laughs> we should go.
1: <laughs> You've seen your book, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, yeah. I, there's a lot I'd like to see. That's for sure. I'd like to see the, um, oh, um, what is the one Melandor?
0: Melandorfi? Uh, yeah. yeah. I really want to find them too. I have not yet. Ah, um, okay. I know where to go, but I haven't been there.
1: Okay, and they're they're kind of a mountainous snake too. Yeah, they're
0: they? they're a cave dweller.
1: Cave dweller, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I can
1: remember back in the seventies, maybe early eighties, late seventies, they used to import these things, these uh, Elefi Melandorfi. Um, they're beautiful snakes, but, uh, of course everybody tried to keep them like corn snakes or, you know, like a typical North American coluba. They would keep them too warm and they were, um, parasite, you know, mm. parasite ridden. So they never really did very well. Um, I think there's a few people that, that work with the successfully work with those in the States, uh, but they're just a really cool, uh, herp. I just, you know, if, if I had one, Apex rat snake. I'd like to see that would be it.
0: So, so uh, Matt Most, uh, Matthew Most. He's the guy that um, basically did all of the uh, captive aspect of this book. So prior to when I was working on this book um, just by myself, uh, all I had was the natural history stuff. Right. And at one point, I remember somebody was uh, there was like the Rat Snake Foundation. Or something like that on the internet that had a whole bunch of really cool
1: I remember. captive
0: information, and I tracked down uh, Matt at some point in time. I'm like, hey, uh, by the way, I'm working on this book, but I know almost nothing about the natural history. You know, I'm trying to make it kind of similar to the a guide to Alafian kin. You know, do you have any interest in uh, joining on this uh, this trip of mine? And he said, "Yeah, I'd love to." So, all of the captive care and reproduction, and pretty much any captive photo is his. And man, okay, he he is a he's awesome at rat snakes, and his collection is super impressive. So yeah, he has Mollendorf's down to a science, captive wise. Yes, um, yeah, it's very high on my list too. I definitely want to find them in the wild.
1: Okay, well, we'll tag that one for a. future reference for me and you (laughs) awesome well thank you once again kevin um enjoyed talking to you whether we're on the recording or not it was been fun to to sit down and catch up with you talk with you a bit definitely thanks for having me I look forward to doing that again sometime in the future ditto all right thank you again all right thanks hey there it's me again uh, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin, and I'm coming back on for just a moment to point you all to the show notes for this episode at you know com. I have links in the show notes to a number of Kevin's accomplishments, including his scientific publications, and also a link to the latest Field Herp forum post where he describes in great detail the discovery of his latest new frog species, the one we talked about. And you may also enjoy his other detailed forum posts about Herp Adventures in China and elsewhere. And of course, if you go to Amazon.com or Lulu.com and search for Kevin Messenger, his book on the Asian rat snakes comes right up. Uh, You can also search for his name on YouTube and watch the famous monkey video and his other postings there. So thank goodness you all know how to search for stuff and I don't have to spoon feed you all the links for every blessed thing. I also want to thank Kevin for including some information about Hurt Mapper in his Asian Rat Snake book. Much appreciated, and I hope that will encourage others in China and elsewhere to log their finds. And I also want to say thanks for the two-page section entitled Mandarin Pronunciation Notes for English Speakers. That's very useful information inside the book and just out in the world in general. So, uh, Kevin, I meant to thank you for those during our conversation, but I completely spaced out on doing so. Lastly, I want to give a shout out to Dan Rosenberg, Kevin Caldwell, and William Christopher Murphy, three gentlemen herpers in China and elsewhere. And uh, uh, talking with Kevin brought you all to mind, and I hope you are all doing well, and hopefully I will see you all again sometime soon. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I will talk to you all again soon. that's it for episode 66 thank you so much kevin messenger for talking with me and congratulations on the new book and the new frog of course and uh, once again all the best to you and your family And i hope our paths cross again sooner than later thanks once more to all the so much pingle patrons who have gotten the show all the way to a third season much appreciated and if you would like to help kick in a few bucks to help support the show you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash and so muchpingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to muchpingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better.